weeks, we have been talking about um, Paul primarily, and we've been talking about uh, these Judaizing teachers that he was uh, arguing against and fighting against and all the challenges that the early church faced and how Paul was very uh, was really the front runner in, in dealing with a lot of those issues. But there's a lesser known uh, man so what, of who you could call an unsung hero of the New Testament uh, that was very instrumental as well and worked hand in hand with Paul through that time. And his name was Barnabas. Barnabas was from an island called Cyprus and uh, his birth name, his given name was uh, Joseph, but the apostles renamed him to Barnabas, and that means son of consolation. He was a consoler. Some of the uh, other translations, like the one that I'll be using today, use the word encouragement rather than consolation. So Barnabas was an encourager. He, he uh, went out of his way to encourage people, to comfort people, to build people up, and we'll see that here in just a few minutes. But again, he grew up in a place called Cyprus, it was an island, and I read somewhere that he was essentially a displaced Jew, and that the area there was had a lot of problems, and Jews were really the minority there, uh, if I understand it correctly, and that his experience growing up as a Jew would have been very different and much more difficult than a Jew that grew up in Jerusalem, where they would have been had a lot more support there. And so Barnabas, that's kind of where he comes from, and... Um, <clears throat> He uh, is first mentioned in the last verse of the fourth chapter of Acts. But before we get there, to kind of set the stage of what's going on when Barnabas is introduced in the New Testament, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what was happening. Um, Peter and John went to the temple in Jerusalem. And the Bible says that outside of the gate, there was this lame beggar that was over 40 years old. He had been lame from birth, and every day someone took him and set him outside the gate. And he would beg and ask for food or money or whatever to all the people that were going in the temple and that were around that area. And Peter and John were going to the temple, and they noticed this lame beggar laying there at the gate. And Peter said, he told the beggar to look at him. And the beggar looked up, and he assumed that Peter was going to give him some money or some food or something. And Peter gave him something else and said, and he told him, he said, I don't have any silver, and I don't have any gold, but what I have comes from Jesus Christ, and he told him to get up and walk, and the Bible says that Peter reached down his hand, and he pulled him up, and that the, the lame beggar leapt up, and he went into the temple with Peter and John, praising God for the miracle that just happened, and for his healing, and as you can imagine, as they went to the temple, all of these Jews that were around there recognized the lame beggar, and he'd been there for probably a long time. And they were, the Bible says they were amazed, and they were filled with wonder. And Peter sees an opportunity to preach to the people there. And, you know, everybody's gathering up around them, and Peter looks at him and he says, Why do you look at us as if it was by our own power that this man has been healed? And he said, the, the reason that this beggar is, this lame beggar is healed is because of Jesus Christ, the very man that you denied in front of Pilate and who Pilate was ready to set free, the very man that you um, rather chose to have crucified. And as you can imagine, word spread like wildfire around there in Jerusalem. And the captain of the temple guard came and arrested Peter and John hauled him off to jail, and they spent the night there. 
The Bible says that, um, that there were 5,000 people that heard the message and that believed. So you can imagine that this just was a, a really um, uh, significant event that happened there in the temple. And so the next day, uh, the high priest was there and several other men who were descendants of high priests, some very powerful Jewish figures there in Jerusalem were there. And Peter and John were sent before them. And they began to question them and said, who, um, essentially, who gave you the power to heal the lame beggar? And again, they told them the same thing that they had told them the day before, that it was Jesus, that the man that they had crucified, the man that God had raised from the dead. It was because of him that the, beggar, the lame beggar was standing there in good health in their midst. And so I tried to think of a good analogy to illustrate this situation. And I'm not a, a huge sports fan. I really appreciate sports. I just have a lot of other things that occupy my attention. But I, I think that you can think about if, uh, if the Cowboy Stadium just down the road was full of every Cowboy fan on planet Earth. You know, it was totally filled up, and outside there were, you know, people waiting outside. And on the 50-yard line, Jerry Jones and all the coaches and the support and the staff, they were all gathered there. And in comes two good old Cajun boys from New Orleans with their Saints jerseys on. And they go down to the 50-yard line, and they commence to telling Jerry Jones and the whole fan base there that the Dallas Cowboys are real, real, irrelevant. And the Dallas Cowboys are no longer America's team, but it's the New Orleans Saints. And, you know, they go on and on, and they rib them about, you know, the VCR that they have to have to watch their, you know, last winning Super Bowl. And they go on and on. And you can imagine that probably... <laughs> Well, I know y'all are Cowboys fans, and you know that I'm not, you know, I, I'm a fan of whoever you are rooting, I am a fan of the team you're playing against, I'm the contrarian, so I don't get emotionally involved, but, so you can imagine that they probably wouldn't make it out there alive, you know, uh, certainly in other areas of the country where sports uh, fanatics are much more um, hardcore that, that there would be some repercussions for that, but you can imagine that would be intense, and this was, this was an intense event that happened here with the high priest and with Peter and John and what they had done, and so the high priests were getting pretty nervous because, you know, they had a problem on their hands. All of these people had seen this miracle happen, and word spread like wildfire, and they couldn't really find anything to charge Peter and John with, so they told, they started to threaten them and say, don't preach about this Jesus anymore. And they told them very boldly that they were going to continue to do that. And they released them, and Peter and John went back to the other Christians there. And what happened next was um, really phenomenal. Uh, and you can imagine Peter and John skipping back all the way to, you know, really excited and going back to the other Christians and sharing what had just happened. And what, what happened was they created this momentum there in Jerusalem and in the church there. And this momentum began to build, and people got really excited. You know, I try to think of an analogy centered around a momentum. Uh, Dusty didn't know it, but he used the example this morning of the salesman going into a foreign country and selling widgets. I was once a, well, I am a salesman, but I was once a widget salesman that went to foreign countries and sold said widgets. And I was in a car and on my phone, and I hit a child in a foreign country with a car. Thankfully, said child was in a car seat, in a car, and we were going at a very low rate of speed, and I swerved before I hit him and just barely nicked the car. But uh, I found it interesting that he used that analogy because I've replayed that several times in my mind throughout the years, and it could have been a much worse situation. 
I um, uh, was in the uh, Virgin Islands when that happened, and it took the police officer, and you gotta think this is uh, uh, an island that's maybe six miles wide and 12 miles long, and uh, it took the police officer 45 minutes to get there. I called the police station at least twice, asking if they would hurry up, because I had a plane to catch. And uh, when, the, when, the, when the police officer got there, he quickly um, realized that I was not native and that the person that I hit was, and so was he. And the ticket that he wrote me with all the charges looked like a CVS receipt when he got done with it. And um, anyway, side, side story, I just thought it was interesting just to use that analogy. But in the last 10 years of being in sales and business development, I've been sent to training all over the country. I've gone through all these courses and done all this, this uh, you know, training to, to you know, groom me in, in that field by the companies that I worked for. And what I have found that the most powerful thing for a salesperson is not the fancy training or the motivational speakers or any of that. The most powerful thing a salesperson can do to be successful is to get momentum. You know, when you first start working for a company or you enter into you know, some market and you're selling a product or service um, and you're starting from zero and you have no momentum, you have no contacts, you know, you have no production, nothing going on, it is extremely difficult to put forth the effort and the energy that's required to get the momentum turning. You, you're making hundreds of calls a week, you're stopping by and seeing people, you're knocking on doors, people are telling you no, it can be very discouraging. And what happens in, in over and over and over, this is just how it works, you, you pour yourself into it, and as soon as you close that first deal, then this momentum just really picks up. And then all of a sudden it's easy, and you're closing this deal, and you're closing this deal, and you go from zero sales to millions of dollars of sales, and that's just how it works. And the whole key there is that momentum. And if, as long as you keep that momentum going, and you keep you know, fueling that fire, it, it, it just, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. Um, I've never done drugs, but I have been, as they would say, high. And there's a thing in, in the sales world that's called a sales high, and it's a real thing. And that is essentially when what I just described, you work extremely hard and you get really discouraged and then you close this big deal and it's just this euphoric feeling that you have. And uh, if, you know, if that's how people feel when they do drugs, I understand why they get hooked on them because it's, you know, it's just a, a really enlightening feeling and, yeah, of excitement. And I think that's what Peter and John probably felt as they were going back to the Christians there to, to share with them what had happened in the temple. And then we see in, the next, in, uh, the, in Acts chapter 4 what became because of that. It says, And when they had prayed, in the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the, words, uh, speak the word of God with boldness. You can uh, imagine this, this, this momentum and this excitement that was building around what had happened at the temple. And then uh, we see what happens is they began to share their possessions. You know, there were a lot of people that were poor. Uh, there were a lot of people that were being disowned by their families because they were leaving their, their Jewish tra traditions and they were converting to Christianity and their families were disowning them. And there was a lot of problems and a lot of those problems were financial. So people were selling what they had and they were sharing and uh, it says that all things were common to them. And then we see um, Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as they had need, as I just described. And then we first learned about Barnabas. It says, now Joseph, 
a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translates to means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so we see from the very first instance that we learn about Barnabas that, and we see this throughout his, um, uh, the examples that we find in the New Testament about him, that he is a very generous person. He's a very giving person. Uh, he has a big heart and he's very charitable. <clears throat> so let's look at a few things about Barnabas to develop uh, an idea in our minds of who he was. We kind of get the idea, especially from his name, that he was an encourager, and that's ultimately what our theme is today. But I want to look specifically of who Barnabas was and a few places that we find him in the scriptures. <clears throat> Again, he worked very closely with Paul um, to help fight the Judaizing teachers, and he traveled with Paul, and we'll see some of that. In Acts 14 and 14, uh, he is called with Paul an apostle. And so I don't know at what point he became an apostle, but that's uh, clearly what the Bible says that he was and the role that he filled. In Acts 11, we see that he worked at the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch was formed, if you remember back in Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen. And from that, and Paul, before he converted to Christianity, was, uh, was there and uh, was involved with the stoning of Stephen. And from that, the church at Antioch was formed. They had a lot of problems. And the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch to help them, to work with them. Uh, it says in beginning of verse 22, the news about them reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them with all, all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. He was very successful at Antioch, and he was a key um, uh, person that helped uh, put that church in order and, and get them on their way. Paul, during this time, had gone back to Tarsus, where he was from. And Paul was, um, he was, you know, the Jews were trying to kill him. A lot of Christians were afraid of him because they didn't fully trust him yet. And uh, he'd gone back to his home in Tarsus. And Barnabas, we can see um, in uh, verse 25, that Barnabas went to Tarsus to find Saul to bring him to Antioch. And they worked together for an entire year uh, and helped grow that church there. <clears throat> Another thing about Barnabas is that, like Paul, he supported himself during his ministry. He, he didn't rely on um, the churches there that were you know, really struggling and having a hard time. Uh, he didn't rely on them financially, they, uh, and, and he also supported Paul as well. But, uh, but he worked you know, outside of his ministry to, um, to uh, support himself along the way. Barnabas went on, uh, you know, we... When you think about uh, Paul's missionary journeys, we think of them as Paul's missionary journeys because, again, he's, the, he's kind of the front runner in all this, but he's the one that gets a lot of the credit. But um, the first missionary journey was Paul and Barnabas, and they were both called by the Holy Spirit. We see that in Acts 13. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. And they went on their first missionary journey together. Second missionary journey, um, they intended to go together, but they had a disagreement. Um, Barnabas's cousin uh, 
went with them for a very short period of time on the first missionary journey and kind of left them. And I think, uh, I don't know exactly why, I kind of surmised that maybe he couldn't handle what was going on. And he left and Barnabas wanted to bring him on the second journey. Paul did not. And because of that, they had a disagreement and they went two different directions. Paul went on uh, on the second missionary journey and Barnabas went back to his home in Cyprus. And I believe uh, continued to work with uh, the church there in Cyprus. And then from history, some of the things that I found that um, the Bible doesn't, isn't clear about, but his, history, history tends to adopt is that he was stoned to death, and that was in around 61 AD, and he was died and buried in Cyprus where he was born and where he had done a lot of uh, work with the church there. And I found another deal that he may have attended the same Jewish school um, that uh, Paul did, a very prominent school at that time. <clears throat> so that's kind of a broad overview of the life of Barnabas, but I want to back up and really talk about one particular event that happened that was very significant um, in Paul's, uh, after he had, shortly after he had become a Christian, and how that kind of relates to us today. If you remember in um, Acts chapter 9, we can read about Paul's conversion. Uh, and you know he was on the road to Damascus. He was headed down there to arrest and persecute Christians. And along the way, Christ appeared to him, and and he was converted there on that road. And he went on to Damascus, and rather than persecute Christians, he preached Jesus. Um, and again, as you can imagine, that uh, Christians were were uh, very leery of him. They were afraid of him. They didn't trust him. And so, sometime after he went to Damascus, he went to Jerusalem, and the churches there, the Christians there, were terrified of him. And uh, Barnabas was kind of the conduit. Uh, he, he encouraged the Christians there. He vouched for Paul, and he encouraged the Christians there to accept him. And he helped kind of pave the way and make it a little bit smoother early on for Paul to be able to be effective with those churches there. So, <clears throat> get back to my notes here. So, in thinking about that, um, you, you could surmise that had it not been for Barnabas, Paul may have not been as effective because, again, Barnabas traveled with Paul. He was instrumental from the beginning and really supported him and helped him um, along the way. And I, I, don't, I think that Paul would have ultimately been who he was because that was God's will for him. It just may have been somebody other than Barnabas that was the conduit to uh, helping Paul get from you know, Saul of Tarsus persecuting Christians to who he is today and being you know, as prominent as he was and influential in the early church. But I think this depiction or this picture really depicts the relationship between Paul and Barnabas very well. What's the first thing that you notice whenever you, what kind of stands out whenever you look at this picture? What stands out to me and, and probably you is the two fighters, right? You have the guy who has obviously won this boxing match and the guy that's knocked out. And for the uh, sake of this illustration, we'll call this guy the standing up Paul, and we'll call this guy that's knocked out the Judaizing teachers. But what you don't notice, but is equally as important as the guy that, that just knocked you know, the other guy out, notice this guy over here. What does that guy do? He's the guy in the corner who is supporting the fighter. And without him, the fighter has no chance. You know, between rounds, um, or during the rounds, the guy in the corner, who will relate to Barnabas, is watching the fight. 
He's assessing what's going on. He's seeing what the fighter needs and where he can improve and what he needs to look out for. And then between rounds, it, the fighter goes back to the corner and he's doctoring his eyes and covering up you know, his, uh, his wounds and he's telling him and he's encouraging him. He's telling him, you're doing good. Just get back out there and, and uh, finish the fight. And I think that's a good illustration of, of the relationship or what, what happened with Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas wasn't uh, in, the, in the limelight, right? He was kind of uh, in the shadows, but he was equally as important as Paul was early on, and he helped support Paul and encourage Paul and encourages churches such as Antioch where he worked. So I think what we can learn from this today and what we can learn from the life of Barnabas and the example that he set is that we too... Um, need to be like Barnabas and that we encourage others. You know, encouragement <coughs> is um, it's really a powerful thing. Uh, whenever, you know, the, uh, probably everybody here has a story that's personal to them or that they know of somebody else where they can, you know, tell you about somebody that was on a path. Maybe that path wasn't good and that somebody came along and encouraged them and because of that, you know, they changed their course and that they... Uh, uh, you know, went on to become something great. And that's because when, when somebody gets involved in our lives or we get involved with somebody else's lives and we really encourage them, uh, not just, you know, just kind of a one-off, you know, you know, nice remark about them on a Sunday, but, but get involved in their lives and encourage them and help build them up, you can really change the, the trajectory of someone's life. You know, it's kind of like the... Uh, the, the analogy of a plane. You know, if a plane is traveling and it gets one degree off course, that, you know, it can end up, you know, after an hour, a couple hours or whatever, can end up way apart from where it was originally destined for. And that can either be good or bad. And so that's one thing to consider that I thought about as I was uh, looking at Barnabas and, and him being this encourager and how we, can, um, how we can be the same way is that, you know, we can be very encouraging to people, but encourage them to do something or to adopt a lifestyle that is ultimately harmful. And uh, I'll give you an illustration. Um, I, uh, several years ago, uh, I decided I wanted to learn how to play guitar. And, and I was really, and I still am, I love Texas country music. I like to listen to the musicians that aren't on the radio that are kind of independent guys. And I was just enamored with that. So I bought a guitar or got a guitar and, um, you know, got a, literally a guitar basics for dummies book and uh and i read that thing or half of it at least and i started being able to play a few chords and i'd kind of sing along to a few songs well not not very long after i started that there was a coffee a local coffee shop that opened up and they were having this open mic deal where you could just go in there with a the guitar and play you know a couple of songs and, and you know whatever so i thought oh, i'll go down there and try that so i went in there and i played my couple of songs put my guitar in my case, and I was like, I am never doing that again. It was the most awful racket that you've ever heard, and couldn't hardly play the guitar right, wasn't playing the right chords, and uh, couldn't sing, you know, just, it was terrible. And I thought, I'm never doing this again. And when I was walking out of there, the owner of the coffee shop, he said, hey, that was really good. Are you coming back next week? And I thought, well, maybe I am. <laughs> And so I went back and I began to play and to do all this and he encouraged me to do that. But the, the point that I want to make is that for the next probably three years, I just totally 
invested all of my time and money and attention into playing music and that ultimately led me somewhere that wasn't good and I ended up playing in a lot of places where you know you sh good you know Christian people shouldn't be and doing a lot of things that that you shouldn't do right and so had he not encouraged me to follow that there was nothing harmless had he not encouraged me I probably would have hung it up from the beginning because you know I was so discouraged after the first time I did it so my point is you know we really have to think about um, for one, we need to encourage people. We need to think about what we're encouraging people to do or to be involved with or whatever goal that they may have that we're pushing it to. It may not always be good uh, or it may not always have a, a good end result. And, and we just have to recognize that when we encourage people, it can set them on a trajectory that can be very, very good or it can be very bad. So we want to be aware of that. Finally, I just want to read a couple of verses about encouragement. <clears throat> First Thessalonians, I didn't put them on my PowerPoint, but First Thessalonians 5 and 11 says, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. And in Ephesians 4 and 29 it says, no, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those that hear. So my encouragement to you is to, this week, to find opportunities to encourage other people because um, you can, you know, be a Barnabas in their life and really support them, and you have no idea what they could go on uh, uh, to do when you get involved with their life and, and encourage them uh, to follow Christ and exemplify Christ in their life. Uh, those are my thoughts this afternoon. Um, if there's any way that the church can help you, I'd ask that you'd come and stand, or come as we stand and sing.